On to this morning, you know we're starting in the book of Malachi this morning, and as we introduce our way there, love is certainly one of the great themes of the Bible, and arguably, depending on how you frame it, love is the theme of the Bible. You know, you've got verses like John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, or you take a, uh, an epistle like 1 Corinthians, you've got one chapter whose sole aim is to describe and define love. Love is patient, love is kind. In fact, it, it ends by saying, if I have a host of other things but don't have love, I'm nothing. You've got a great passage, normally only heard at weddings, but it's one of the greatest passages in the Bible describing love. This is from the Song of Songs, the book in the Old Testament that's, that's nothing but a love song. And in chapter 8, the bride says, Set me like a seal upon your heart, like a seal upon your arm. Love is as strong as death. Jealousy, uh, love's desire to possess and be possessed exclusively. Jealousy is as hard and cruel as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man would offer all the goods of his house for love, he would be utterly scorned and despised. In other words, love is something of such value, you can't buy it no matter what you have to spend. Love is above price. Now, because love is this key or preeminent theme in the book of books in the Bible, it's no surprise then it becomes this key theme in all of history and all of literature and songs and movies and on and on and on. You know what I'm talking about. Just a couple of examples. In history, biblical history, the story of Jacob and Rachel, this great love story, right? Jacob works seven years for Rachel, the gal he wants, gets tricked, works seven more years, works 14 years so he can wed young Rachel. Or here's another one in history closer to home. Do you guys remember the story of King Edward VIII of England? This was just about 100 years ago. King Edward VIII of England reigned, I think it was the second shortest reign in English history. It was less than a year. Do you remember why his reign was so short? He didn't die. He forsook the throne of England so that he could marry an American divorcee. He gave up the kingdom for Wallace Simpson, an American woman who had been divorced twice and the British law did not allow a monarch to marry a divorced woman. This went back because the monarchy was tied to the Anglican Church, of course, the Church of England. He gave up the kingdom for Wallace Simpson. Or in literature, you know, we go back and we think of Romeo and Juliet. It's a tragedy, but of course it's all centered in this love story. Think of, uh, closer to home for some people in this group anyway, there's Miss Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy in Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Or last night I was reminded of Wesley and Princess Buttercup in The Princess Bride. That's a key one, yeah. But you know, if you think of movies or songs or whatever, it's almost always about love. Love is the theme of history, literature, art. It's the key theme of the Bible. Here's my question, though. What happens when the lover is one when the relationship is consummated and when life goes on? What happens to love after the emergency is over? What happens to love as time and as life goes on? What happens when the fires of love are satisfied? What happens when the lovers 
grow old? Does love grow old too? And do the passions of love, of first love, do they live on or do they just burn down to to ashes and char on the fire heap there? What happens to love over time? As we start a short book of Malachi, just remember this, it's always about the love. It's always about the love. As you'll see when we start here this morning, we'll only take the first five verses. It's always about the love. If love is there, if love is in place, if love is what it's supposed to be, there's no other issue to take care of. And if love isn't there, and if love isn't what it's supposed to be, everything else goes awry. Everything else falls apart, as you'll see in Malachi. Malachi is built on the theme of love and particularly love in covenant. Uh, We don't use this term a lot. If we do, we talk about the Old Testament or Old Covenant and maybe the New Covenant. We think of it in terms like that. But remember for Jews, covenant is a way of life. Covenant is a formal treaty that you make with other countries. It it has everything to do with how you relate to someone else, to another nation. Or a covenant is what a king made with his people. Or a covenant is what a husband and a wife made with one another. And it is a stronger sense than we have today of just a legal contract. We tend today to think in terms of contracts and a court of law. Covenant is more personal than that. It is a legal, formal commitment, but it's more than that. It's more than that. And Malachi is built on the theme of covenant love, of committed faithful love. That's what the book starts with. It's what it ends with. It's all about the love. In this book, God says to Israel, I love you, and asks the question of Israel, do you love me? We could put it more personally this morning for our own sakes. God loves us. Do we love God? That's really what all this comes down to. Just by way of introduction, before we get into that first five verses, let me mention this. You guys know Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It was written around 400 B.C. You know, when Malachi speaks, there's 400 silent years before Jesus is born. So he's the last recorded prophet of the Old Testament. His name means my messenger. Malachi means my messenger, God's messenger. And we're really not sure if Malachi is his real name or if Malachi is the pseudonym or the title that the author is writing under. Not entirely clear. Malachi might be his name, might not be his name. Most commentators assume or think there's a pretty good degree of probability that Malachi was a priest. And you'll see as you read through, it's because he makes so many comments about the priesthood and the temple specifically. So it might be his real name, might be a pseudonym, and the author appears to be a priest. And remember, too, when he writes, to put this uh, in the timeline or the flow of Israel's history, Israel's back in the land. Uh, We studied 1 Kings last summer, Solomon, you know, about 1,000 B.C. This is about 400 B.C., so 600 years later. So most of the history you think of with the Old Testament and with Israel specific, it's over when Malachi writes. But what has happened, you remember they're taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon? 70 years of captivity, and then they return. So that when Malachi writes, the Jews are back in the land, the temple's rebuilt, Jerusalem's rebuilt, and life is going back on God's people in God's land. Everything's not quite the way they would like it to be. Remember, Israel is ruled by Persia at this point, so they're not autonomous, they don't have their own king. 
And there are some difficult times economically for them in this time frame too, but pretty much they're free to live at peace as they choose. So life in that sense is actually pretty good. Another thing related to Malachi, it's kind of an easy book to read through or to study and to teach in this sense that it's broken up by subject. It's real easy to look through and diagram or put an outline to, English majors, because it's very intentional in its subject matter. It goes from one subject to another, and they're easy to see. There's a form through this, and it goes like this. God makes a statement. Israel responds to the statement, and then God explains. God makes a statement. Israel says something to God's statement, and then God explains the way things really are. That's the form of Malachi. Some think, Steve, thinking about uh, law, some think this is meant to be read or conveyed as a legal hearing. That is, God's coming in as a prosecutor, and he's giving an indictment or a charge. And then Israel says, well, what do you mean? How am I guilty of this charge? And then God explains how they're guilty, what their failure to the covenant has been. Others think it's what's called a hortatory epistle or writing, which means that it's God's way of strongly exhorting or encouraging Israel to come back and do the things that are in their best interest, to call them back up to where they should be. But however you see it, God's reproving his people, and all this reproof starts with this issue of love. You don't love me the way you should. Let's start. I'll just read through the first five verses. If you've got your Bible, feel free to join in. If you don't, um, don't. Listen. This is the NIV, New International Translation I'm reading from. And in verse 1, I'll mention just a couple things uh, by way of explanation. An oracle, uh, you could read this. Some, some Bibles say the burden. Uh, an oracle just means a prophetic utterance. It means a word from God. So an oracle, the word of the Lord... To Israel through Malachi. Lord, here, if you look in your Bibles, it might be in all caps, and that means that when we say Lord, it's actually our transliteration of something else. This would be Yahweh. This would be God's covenant name. This is the name God revealed Himself to Israel. So it's His special name. It's kind of like a pet name if a husband has for a wife. This is the pet name or the specific name God gave Israel to know Him by Yahweh. So as you read through this, God is calling himself his covenant name to his covenant people. So the word of Yahweh to Israel through Malachi, through God's messenger. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, Israel asks, how have you loved us? God responds, was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland, and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, and Edom is the nation that's descended from Esau, Jacob's brother, Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. That is, Edom, a nation outside of Israel proper. So here's God. He starts this prophetic utterance talking to Israel through Malachi. And the first thing he says is, I've loved you. I have loved you, Israel. Now, if I came up to my wife and said, I have loved you, my wife might say a number of things. She might say, I'm so glad you do. 
Or she might say, thanks, and I love you too. You know, there could be a number of responses that would be appropriate. Israel's response to God is a little lacking. When God says to Israel, his bride, his covenant people, I have loved you, what's their response? How have you loved us? What do you mean you've loved us? What does that look like? Where's the proof or the evidence of your love? Or we might say, where's the beef? We don't see it. Remember for Israel life at this point, it's not at the high plateau of a King David or a King Solomon where the cities flow with gold and they're ruling over all the nations around them. It's more mundane. It's probably more like the lives most of us live. It's more mundane. It's not everything they wanted it to be. Not everything they thought it to be. And remember too, they also live with an expectation. They've got all of Isaiah's prophecies. They've got Zechariah's prophecies at this time. They've got all these promises about God would rebuild Israel as the center of the world. And they're not. And they know it. So on that hand, when God says, I've loved you, they respond probably in some degree out of the sense of disappointment or life is just kind of blasé or passé or not what I wanted or thought it would be, what do you mean, God? What do you mean you've loved us? Where is, where's the love, Lord? Now remember for Israel to say this, think of all the things they're ignoring. Think of all the things they're ignoring. This is about 400 B.C. God appears to Abraham about 2000 B.C. And in all that time, God selects out Abraham and his descendants and he promises them a land and he redeems them from Egypt and he brings them in. He gives them homes. Do you remember in fields? He says, you didn't labor for, but I'll give them to you anyway. He set them up as the head of the nations under David and under his son Solomon. He chastised them through the Babylonians and took them captive, but he promised them that he'd deliver them and bring them back home, which he's done. And they also live with these promises of the future, this glorious future that God would yet bring to pass. So Israel would be able to look back at their history and say, we've seen God intervene in our life to bless and to discipline for our good, to give us wealth, to fulfill his promises towards us. They had all that at their fingertips or in their mind, and none of it comes up. Their response to God saying, remember that I've loved you is, what do you mean? How have you loved us? I don't recall. What does that look like? Imagine if you're King Edward VIII and Wallace Simpson says, how have you loved me? She would have to ignore the fact that you, unique perhaps in history, that you gave up a kingdom to marry her. How have you loved me, Eddie? Well, I gave up my throne. I gave up my kingdom to marry you. Or imagine that you go into the sitting room of Miss Elizabeth, excuse me, Mrs. Darcy, and Mr. Darcy, two or three years after the wedding's over, and she says to Mr. Darcy, I'm not sure you love me. Remember, Mr. Darcy has salvaged, has ransomed she and her family from shame and from poverty at his expense. And she would say, well, I don't know what that looks like. How have you loved us? Or think of Rachel telling Jacob, are, are you sure you love me? I haven't seen much, much evidence of that lately. You know, Jacob, who worked hard, in fact, he describes what his servitude looked like with her brother Laban, out in the elements, 14 years, working morning to night, so that, only so that, he could marry Rachel. And Rachel might say to him, well, I don't know. Do you really love me or how do you love me? I haven't seen any evidence of it. That is essentially what Israel says to God when God says... I've loved you. They say, well, how? What's that look like? We don't see it. We look around us and we don't see the evidence of your love. 
God is very gracious through this whole letter, through this whole oracle. And he says, I've loved you. And he tells him in two ways. Now, he could, have, he could have said some of the things I mentioned here, the past deliverances and so forth. But he doesn't. For whatever reason, God lands on two things. When Israel says, what's the proof of your love, God? God says two things. The first thing he says is, I chose you. I love you because I chose you. And the second thing he says is, I've judged those who have harmed you. I have defeated those who wanted to harm you. Let's start with the first one, chosen by God. Israel was chosen by God specifically to be loved. And you guys know, if you read the Old Testament stories, it's a, stories, it's a sequence of stories about God choosing one and not another. And it's not that there was anything inherent in the object of his choice. It was his sovereign choice to set his love on someone and not another. So in this context, think of the person that God chose to love. Now, he started with Abraham, but he promised to bless Abraham's heirs. And if you remember, he chose Isaac. He didn't choose Ishmael. And when Isaac has sons, after a lengthy period of barrenness between he and his wife, Rebekah, he has twins. And God says, I chose Jacob, not Esau. Now, Jacob... And his descendants, Israel, might say that's because Jacob was such a fine, outstanding guy. But then all you have to do is go back and read Jacob's stories. What kind of guy is Jacob? Jacob comes out of the womb doing what? Grabbing his brother's heel. And then what's his early life look like? He swindles his brother's inheritance. When his brother's down and out, what would a good brother do? Give him that little bit of porridge. What does Jacob say? I'll give you a little food if you'll give me your inheritance. Then later, what's he do? He tricks, he deceives, he lies to, directly lies to his poor blind father Isaac to steal Esau's blessing. This is Jacob. This is the one God chose. There was nothing worthy in Jacob that elicited God's choice. He was no better and no worse, we could argue, than Esau. But God says, I chose Jacob. I chose Jacob. He didn't choose Jacob because of Jacob's sterling qualities. He chose Jacob in spite of who he was and who he wasn't. Now, later, Jacob's descendants, of course, become the nation of Israel. And God redeems those descendants, Israel, out of Egypt. Do you remember some of the things God says about Israel after redeeming them or in the process of redeeming them. Israel might say, well, God redeemed us. God chose us because we were so good. Because our nation is such great character. God says when he redeems them in Deuteronomy, by the way, the book of Deuteronomy is is preeminently in the the law, the five books of the the front end of the Bible. It's the book of the covenant. It describes the covenant relationship. In it, God says in Deuteronomy 7, Yahweh has chosen you to be his own possession. God chose you to be his own possession above all other peoples of the earth. The Lord chose you because he loved you very much. He didn't choose you because you had more people than other nations. In fact, you were the smallest of all. If Israel was thinking God chose us to love us because we were great, God says, oh no, you're the least. I didn't choose you because you were powerful or desirable or worthy or wealthy. You were the least and I chose you anyway. Or in Deuteronomy 9, 6, 
God says, Know then it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. You are a stubborn people. In fact, if you read the law, God repeatedly says of Israel, you're a stiff-necked people. That is, you're always resisting what I want to do. God didn't choose Israel because they were a great nation or wealthy or powerful or wise. He chose them in spite of what they were. This is a gross passage, but it, I, th- I think graphically it helps you to put this in perspective. In Ezekiel, written about the time of the captivity, Ezekiel in graphic terms talks about God choosing Israel. Listen to what he says. Basically he says, Israel, when I chose you, I, cho- I chose an abortion. I chose a person aborted and undesired and left in the dirt of life to die. That's graphic. Ezekiel 16, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. This is an insult. You're just like the Gentile nations. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut. You weren't washed with water to make you clean. You weren't wrapped in cloths. No one looked with you on pity or had compassion. You were thrown out into the open field. On the day you were born, you were despised. And I passed by, and I saw you kicking in your own blood. This is meant to be a grotesque picture. Born out of time, undesired, unclean, unwashed. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I chose you. You were not desirable. You were grotesque and I chose you anyway and I set my love on you and I said to you, live. God didn't choose Israel because they were lovely or worthy. He chose them in spite of who and what they were. So when Israel says to God, how have you loved me? What does that look like? I don't remember. He says, I chose you. I loved you in spite of who and what you were. The second thing he does is says, that he judged those who harmed his chosen one. You and I tend to draw back from some of the language that we read, you know, when God says, I hated Esau, and I'm destroying him, and I'm calling his place wicked. Um, God displays both sides of his character in love and in judgment in this, and hopefully we'll address this just a little bit to make it, uh, to put it in perspective, I guess. But God says the other way he's choosing through Malachi to tell Israel that he's loved them and prove his love is that he has judged those who harmed Israel. And in this case, it's Edom. It's the descendants of Esau. Now remember, in this passage, Esau is not just Esau and Jacob is not just Jacob. Esau is also Esau and his descendants, the nation of Edom. And if you look at your Bible map, Edom used to live right across the Jordan and the Dead Sea, kind of at what would be southeast Israel. So they were a neighbor to Israel there on the southeastern corner. That's where Esau's descendants lived and grew and became a nation. And then Jacob means Jacob and his descendants, the nation of Israel. So when God says Esau, he doesn't just mean you can't go back and read all this back into the Genesis account is what I'm getting at. This doesn't just refer to Esau in Genesis. This refers to Esau and to his descendants and to the timeline of history from Esau right up through the captivity of Babylon, right up to the time preceding Malachi's writing. You need to understand that. When God says here that he hated Esau 
and he made his mountains desolate, and he would tear down whatever Edom or Esau chose to build up, it's because he's judging Esau, Edom, for what they did to Israel. Obadiah, an overlooked book in the Old Testament, one chapter long in the Minor Prophets, Obadiah says this, and Obadiah is writing about the period when Babylon conquered Jerusalem. And this is what God said. For the violence you did against your brother Jacob, the nation of Israel, shame shall cover you and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers took captive his forces, carried off his wealth, foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were even as one of them. You didn't give help. You hurt them with their captors. You should not have gloated over your brother's day. Remember, the Edomites are all related by blood to the Israelites. They're cousins, as it were. <clears throat> you should not have gloated over your brother's day, the day when his misfortune came and he was made a stranger or was taken out of his own land. You should not have rejoiced over the sons of Judah in the day of their ruin. You should not have spoken arrogantly in the day of their distress. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. This is what the Edomites, the nation of Esau, did to the Jews. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations, as you have done, Esau, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. When God says this in Malachi, when he says, I've hated Esau, he's not just referring back to Esau, whom the book of Hebrews tells us despised his birthright. He didn't value the things God valued. We understand that. But he's speaking about the nation that when Israel was down, Esau went over and kicked them with the Babylonians. Not only did Esau not help their cousins Judah, but they took advantage of them. They destroyed their survivors and they turned over fleeing captives back to Babylon. They hurt their cousin, their brother, Jacob, when he was down. And for that, God says, he was judging them. Now imagine, if you will, remember God is proving his love to Israel. Imagine if someone comes up and assaults my wife. And let's just say I'm not there at the time. What would my attitude be towards them? Or assume I am there. What, would I let them assault my wife? I wouldn't. I would stop them. I'm not God, but God has all power at his disposal. So basically God says, when Esau came down and abused my beloved, my betrothed, my covenant people, I judged him. I hated Esau for what he did to my people, and I judged him. So when Israel says, God, we don't remember, how have you loved us? God says, I punished those who harmed you. I proved my love for you because when someone came up and attacked the one I love, I judged them. I not only judged them, but I said they will never get up again. By the way, in the New Testament, when you read about King Herod, do you know why Herod's despised? When you read the term Idumean, King Herod was an Idumean. Do you know what that means? He's a descendant of Esau. The Edomites were kicked out of their land. They never did regain their land. But they moved, some of them did, to southern Judah. And the Idumeans were 
Edomites living in the south of Israel. And that's what King Herod was in Jesus' day. So to those questions, Lord, how have you loved us? What does that look like? God says, I chose you, and you weren't worth choosing. And when someone abused my beloved, I came in and I judged them. I judged them because of what they did to you. Do you remember in the book of the covenant in Deuteronomy, do you remember the one thing God said he asked of and required of his covenant people? One thing, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And what shall you do? And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength. God required one thing of his covenant people. All he said was, I've loved you, I've set my love on you, and I ask one thing, that you love me. In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus reiterates that. What is the great commandment, teacher? What's the one thing required? Jesus says, love the Lord your God. And then he adds, of course, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the one thing God said. He married Israel. Israel's his bride, and he says, I love you, and all I want is for you to love me. This seems reasonable to me. If you have love in a marriage, you have everything. And if you don't have love in a marriage, you have nothing. You've probably seen marriages, hopefully no one here is in one like this, where people go through the form of a relationship, but there's no love in it. Well, that's what Israel was doing at this time. They're going through the motions, but there's no love. So they're saying on one end, technically, well, we're doing okay by you, Lord. But he says, oh, no, no, you aren't. And if Israel loved God, there would be no book of Malachi. He starts with this issue of love because it precedes every failure that follows, every single specific issue that he'll bring up for them, which we'll look at in the coming weeks, is because they don't love him. God says to Israel, I've loved you, but you've not loved me. Coming closer to home on this, do you remember in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus, the head of the church, Jesus who instituted the new covenant in his blood. We live under a new covenant, not the old. Jesus, the head of the new covenant with his bride, the church, that's all of us who believed in him. He writes to those churches, seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And do you remember what he says to the very first church? And this church is the state-of-the-art church. This would be a mega church in our day. This would be, well, this would be a big, successful church in our day. That's what it would be. And he says this, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. I know you can't tolerate wicked men. I know you've tested those who claim to be apostles, those who said they were sent out by me, but were not. You found them false. You've persevered, you've endured hardships for my name, and you've not grown weary. And all this sounds great and commendable. And he commends them for it. But then he adds this, Yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. By the way, the threat to this church is, he says, you repent, you change the way you're interacting with me, or you won't be around anymore. You'll lose your candle, your witness, your testimony. I'll remove you, Jesus says. Because he doesn't want the form. He doesn't need the form. He wants the love. Our hearts. He wants the loving relationship. They had given plenty in work, but no real worship. Or they traded in labor for love. So they're going through the motions, 
And to any of us, if we visited on the outside, everything would look good. It would look okay. Israel's going through the motions in Malachi's day. But God says it's meaningless because there's no love. Have you ever talked to a frustrated wife who says something like this? I never see my husband. He's always at work. I never see my husband. He's always at work. Sometimes they're called workaholics. And then you, you say to the husband, you know, why are you always at work? And the husband says something like this. Well, I'm at work because I love my wife and I'm supporting her. I'm taking care. I'm doing all that work. I'm never with my wife because I love my wife. And so I'm working to support her. And do you know how much weight that carries with most women? You know, none. It's the bucket with holes in it. You're carrying water. It's not in there. Because they know better. They know better. They know that time equals love. Time and attention equal love. Now, providing for your family is a necessary thing. It's a good thing. But you know, especially in our culture, we so value materialism over people, it's ridiculous. And what people really need uh, is the Lord first and then other people. Things come and go. Things rust and break and we throw them away. But people last forever. And of course, God is the eternally existent one. That's what matters. It's not the stuff of life. And most women know if a husband says that, they know it's meaningless. He's going through the motions, but where is the love? Love is the issue, and Malachi starts with the issue of love. If love is your motive, you'll get everything else right. Even if you blow it, you'll be okay. Have you ever had a child who's done something because they thought they wanted to please you and they really got it wrong? And you know, on one hand, you're like, boy, I really wish you hadn't done that, but I love your heart. I understand you're trying to bless me. Love was there and you're blessed because it was there, even if other things go awry. If love's there, everything else is okay. We can take care of, we can handle anything else if the love's there. But if the love is not there, what we devolve to is this repugnant, dead formalism or form of things, whether it's in religion and religious practices, spiritual relationship with the Lord, whether it's in our own marriage or relationships with other. If love's there, life is good. Everything else will follow. If love is missing, nothing can take its place. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, do this this week. Do something Israel could have done. Just stop for a minute or take a piece of paper and a pen or a pencil, something like this. Just stop and just take the time to do this. Just go back in your own mind and say, rehearse to yourself the ways in which you have seen God bless you in the past. This this isn't hard. Just think, just take a little bit of time to address in your own mind, to rehearse, to go over the ways God has blessed you in the past. And for any of us, there, there should be a list that would just keep going and going and going. You know, every good thing, James says, anything good that you've ever experienced in life has come straight from God. You know, the good food you enjoy, the relationships you have with other people, health, whatever, anything you experience that's good comes from God. This should be easy. Just rehearse in your mind the ways God has blessed you. That is a demonstration of his love. Of course, preeminently, that's tied to salvation. We have eternal life now, and we've got this promise that when we die, we see Christ face to face, and we we begin this life of fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore in his presence. That's our future. Life's good here. We have the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to experience this 
overflowing joy and peace in life. And then it just gets better when we die. And, and do something else. You know, Ben Franklin, the positive and the negative side of the equations, you make a decision. This is kind of what I'm talking about. Add up on one side all the ways God has blessed you. And then on the other side of your mind or of that piece of paper, write down the ways in which you're a creep and a slug and a sin and a sinner and a dead salmon floating downstream. In other words, take some time to rehearse in your own mind the ways in which you're not what you should be. The reasons why God wouldn't have looked at you and said, gosh, what a great person, I'm setting my love on them. Because that gives perspective. It helps you remember God's loved me in spite of what I am, in spite of what I've done. That's a healthy reminder. That's a helpful reminder. If you don't know the Lord or you're not sure you know the Lord this morning, you know, the best thing you can do is take him up on his offer. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but would have everlasting or eternal life, life with him forever, married to Christ forever, married to Christ forever. Now, any of us probably could do what Israel did, which I think goes something like this. Life isn't what I thought it'd be. My life isn't where I wanted it to be at this stage. I'm not as good-looking or as lovely as I thought I'd be. I'm not as skinny as I should be. I'm not as smart as I wanted to be, or I haven't been successful, or I'm not married, or I'm married and divorced. You could, we could add, everybody would have lists in which we would say, life's not what I wanted. Life's not the way I thought it would be. And we could feel disappointed and dejected about that. But I think if you'll add up those lists, I think if you remind yourself of the ways God has blessed you, and if you'll remind yourself of the things God has forgiven you of, and the fact that he set his love on you in spite of what you and I have done, that it gives perspective to that. And even if life is hard here now at times, and, and, and sometimes it's very hard, we can still say at any given time, God's good, and he does good, and it's all going to get better. And if it doesn't get better on this earth, it's going to get better in the next life. That's, that's a win-win situation. People without Christ do not have this perspective, this comfort, this hope. But Christ says to one and all, come. Come to the fountain. Come and drink. Come and enjoy life. Let me close with that verse again because I think it keeps things in perspective from the Song of Song. You remember too, Song of Song, Song of Solomon. It's the pinnacle of Solomon's songs. And the pinnacle of his songs is about the love of a man and his bride, his wife. And then, then enlarged, it's the love of God for his betrothed, for his covenant people, Israel in the past and the church now. Many waters can't quench love. Neither can floods drown it. You can't get rid of it, of real love. If a man would offer all the goods of his house for love, he'd be utterly scorned and despised. In other words, nothing else you and I have can take the place of love. You can't give anything else to God that's of value if you don't give him his love. And if God didn't love us, in the end, we would have nothing of value. Let's pray. Lord, I'm struck that you reached down in mercy and grace and chose to set your love on the unlovely and the unlovable such as us. 
And Lord, when we read your indictment of Israel, we don't have to think long or hard to see that those same things apply to us at one time or another. And Lord, I pray that you help us keep things as simple as this, that all you're after is our hearts, that what you want is nothing short of all of us, that you stand there and declare again you've loved us. And you say like a faithful husband, Lord, amazingly condescending, uh, do you love me? It's what you're after. And Father, I know that when we see you face to face, there won't be any of our failures left. And we'll love you with unfettered hearts. But I pray that you'd help us to consistently say no to that uh, darker side of our lives here on the earth. So that we can consistently say, yes, Lord, we love you. And we can display that, Lord, genuinely and affectionately to you in the things we do, the things we say. Lord, I know it's only as we love you that anything else to you has any real meaning any real significance. Lord, we do want to say, we love you, Lord. Thanks for loving us first. In Jesus' name, amen.